Hi, I'm Billy Glosson, lead pastor of Coram Deo Church in Morganton, North Carolina, and you're listening to the Coram Deo Podcast, a place to engage with sermons, devotionals, prayer, and everything else we're doing at Coram Deo. Thanks for listening. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. At this time, I'm going to have Pastor Billy come up and pray with him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for this church family, Lord. Um, And I especially thank you for Billy. Thank you for the way you've met with him this week as he's prepared. Lord, I just pray that um, anything he walked in with today, any distractions that the Holy Spirit, you would just blow that away. Um, And he would bring the word um, with boldness and confidence um, and caring for this church family that he pastors over. Lord, I pray for all of us in the seats that we had the same thing, Lord, that you would move any distractions, anything that's making us feel off, that we'd really receive this word, um, your word for us this morning. Again, we thank you for this place and these people, um, and just meet us now, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I don't know about you guys, but I I love our welcome, and I needed that this morning. that no matter how you're coming in this morning, whatever baggage you have, whatever the week has brought, um, we come together under the banner of Christ with welcome, and that's good news. So when I was first serving as an intern in the church, I was required to go on a short-term international mission trip. Our church um, was really involved in different places, um, one of those being Tokyo, where my uh, older brother Drew now serves as a missionary, the other being uh, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and that's where I got to go. And so they said, Billy, we need you to go to Rio. And I said, shucks, all right, I guess I'll do it. Uh, So I was excited and uh, got to go, and I will admit it's one of the most incredible and beautiful places that I've ever been. I mean, literally mountains are just like bursting out of the ocean, and you're just like looking around, and there's a giant statue of Jesus, and you're just like, yes, this is amazing. It's incredible. It was an amazing experience, but it was also, if I'm honest, awkward, right? If you've ever been on a a short-term mission trip, I think awkward is a pretty good good adjective to describe the experience. Sometimes it's beautiful. You see these amazing moments, and then other times it's kind of like a fish out of water. You don't know the language. You don't really know why you're there. It kind of feels like, is this uh, just tourism, or am I actually being effective? We had an experience that has set with me for a long time, Our church had been involved with this ministry for a number of years. And so because we had so many teams that had gone and served faithfully, they said, you know what, you guys can handle things that some of our other teams can't. And so we're going to take you. And I was like, they can? I don't know what I'm doing. Like, (laughs) my Portuguese is non-existent. I learned how to say hello. That's about the extent of where I was at. And so they tell us we're going to go to a place that is called Crackland. Not a joke. That is the name of a a place in Brazil that essentially is a camp of homeless people by the railroad tracks 
that uh, buy and sell crack cocaine. I mean, that's what they do. And so we drive into one of the favelas, which is the, the word that they use for slums, and we go and we park at an underpass. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. Um, we get out of the van, and uh, the first thing I have to do is figure out how to use the bathroom, because I had to go to the bathroom. If you know me, that's not a surprise. Um, so it was one of those things where I'm trying to figure it out, and the guy leading the trip's just like, I mean, anywhere? Just go. Hurry. We got to go. So we go, and uh, we start walking, and uh, one of the guys in our group is boisterous. He's excited, and he starts singing, um, playing guitar, and uh, sings This Little Light of Mine. And um, we're walking, and we get to a hole in the wall. I'm not exaggerating. It's a literal hole in the wall. And they say, okay, we're going to crawl through this hole, walk down this hill, and we're going to go over to this camp. And I'm thinking to myself, this is insane, right? This, this makes no sense. We, we did this. We go, and we start serving people bread and juice and talking to them and, and kind of interacting with people who are strung out. And uh, we met one guy who had fallen asleep once because he was so high and lost his legs because he fell asleep on the railroad track. That's the extent of the poverty and brokenness that was there. And here we are, a group of Americans singing this little light of mine. I felt completely out of place in this broken, desperately needy place. How in the world was I going to take Jesus to these people? I remember giving out the bread and the juice, and a woman came up. And she took the bread, and then another lady started praying for her. And like a flash, um, all these dots connected. This was the first trip I had taken when I got married. Um, and it was the first trip I had been away from my wife for a longer extended period of time. We're newly married, and so um, I was just, I was missing her. And uh, in that moment, Jesus put this thought in my heart. As much as I long for and miss my bride, how much more does he long for and desire to reconcile his bride to himself? I remember praying with and praying for people and thinking, Jesus, how? How will you reconcile your bride through clumsy and nervous people like me? Maybe you felt that way too. Maybe you have a coworker that you love dearly, but they're so far from Jesus. Maybe it's a family member, right? And you just came out of the holidays and the, the time that you spent with them, you were so frustrated and you wish they felt the same way about Jesus that you do. Maybe you've shared your faith. Maybe you've walked through the reason that you have confidence in Jesus and you felt like it just landed really flat. Sermons like this can feel weighty. They can feel like a good challenge, but then as the reality of sharing the gospel comes, you start to, to feel inadequate. My hope is, is, is as we look at Jesus, to his words after the resurrection, that this would be an encouragement to you. I pray that you would see this great commission with fresh eyes today. Now, we're landing the plane here in our How to Love Your Neighbor sermon series. We wanted to start the year off as we move into this new neighborhood, into this new space, and ask the question, how can we be good neighbors? How can we share the hope of Jesus? And today, we're going to look at the Great Commission. And here's the big idea. Here's what we're going to try and get across today, that we are called 
to go to our neighbors with the hope of Jesus. We're called to go to our neighbors with the hope of Jesus. That's the idea. Go. Today, before we really get to the meat of the text in verses 18 through 20, I just want to start by looking at verses 16 and 17, kind of as we introduce this, to really preface our time together. Jesus says this in verse 16, or it says this in verse 16. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. That should hit us because Jesus just defeated death, um, just rose from the grave. That, that doesn't happen uh, very often. And before Jesus commissions his disciples, there's a posture. So Coram Deo, let me ask you this question. What posture do you bring this morning? Do you come expectantly or do you come doubting? Do you come willing, eager to see God move or are you coming indifferent? cold and distant. Before we get further, I just, I just want to put all my cards on the table. Part of me really wanted to build to this point to be some type of eloquent speaker that I'm not, but I, I just want to be realistic, and I know the reality is your mind is going to wonder as I preach. I know it happens, okay? I see some of you, like you do kind of the thousand-yard stare thing, or you do the, the yawn and look away from me really quick when I make eye contact, I, I want to give you this gold nugget from the beginning because if you hear nothing else, though I do hope you stay with me, I want you to hear this. If you're like me, you read the Great Commission, Jesus' call to, as you go, make disciples, and it can feel ominous. Maybe you've been at times inspired to go, but then you lose that zeal as the weeks and the days go by. How are we ever going to accomplish this? Pastor Jack Miller once posed this, and it has radically changed the way that I think about this passage. This is what he says. He says, the Great Commission, the Great Commission, or missionary command, has two sides. The first is a command to go and disciple. He puts in parentheses, which is an impossible task. And the second is a promise from Jesus to be with us as we obey the command which is, in parentheses, the power to do an impossible task. Just sit with that for a minute. Man, that is so helpful. The first time I read that, I was like, I was just doing cartwheels out of the office over to Michael. I was like, did you read this? It blew my mind. It's true, isn't it? It's an impossible task, but the power is there to do the impossible. Now, I said this last week, you don't save anyone, right? You don't. How often, though, have you believed that you do? Do you realize that disciple-making is an impossible task? I mean, have you felt that reality? If you have kids, yes, you have, right? Because you can't make them do what you want them to do. You can coach them, you can teach them, you can lead them, you can guide them, but you can't change their heart. Let me just ask, I mean, can you make anyone sincerely follow Jesus? Can you change the human heart? The answer, friend, is emphatically no. You can make people say things, you can make people do things, but you cannot change the heart. Only one can. And he's the one who goes with you. It's with this understanding, Coram Deo, 
that I want to look at the rest of this passage because what this does is it turns everything on its head and I pray it will inspire you to go to your neighbors with the hope of Jesus. And so it starts, friends, with a kingdom proclamation. So first, let's look at a kingdom proclamation. Look at verse 18 with me. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is a kingdom proclamation. The king has been enthroned. A brand new day has dawned. Jesus has won the decisive victory over sin, over death, and over Satan. He's accomplished this through his perfect, obedient life, his atoning death on the cross, and his glorious resurrection. And because of this, Jesus is now exalted by the Father in this new enthroned position with all rule and all authority. Jesus, friends, is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Daniel, looking forward to this day, in Daniel chapter 7, said this in verse 14. And this announcement is the fulfillment of that. He says, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. The everlasting dominion has begun, Jesus tells us. Now buckle up, because we're going to do a little bit of theological work Right, And that's going to get us to where we want to go. And I'll try to unpack it as we go so it's not too heady. So Jesus now has risen from the dead. Big deal, okay? That's a big, big deal. And he's saying in his kingdom proclamation that Daniel 7 has now been fulfilled in its first stage. Jesus, the son of man, is now on the throne. He is the king of the nations. And Jesus is declaring in no uncertain terms that he is the Lord of the harvest and that his grand redemptive purpose is to bring into the barn of salvation all the chosen people of God from the nations of the earth. So what's happening here? Well, legally, Jesus won his victory again through his obedient life and his death on the cross. By his substitutionary atonement, he canceled the debt that we have racked up by our sins. And with that legal stroke, Jesus has officially destroyed Satan's authority over the nations. As long as there was no effective atonement for sin, the nation stood under God's curse and the condemning authority of Satan as the legal accuser. But with Christ... Assuming our nature, putting on flesh, becoming man, and undergoing a vicarious death for sinners. What that means is dying in our place for our sins, Satan's right to condemn transgressors is over. The resurrection shows the father's acceptance of his son's atoning sacrifice and the dethronement of the evil one. In other words, Jesus has put death in the ground. He has satisfied the wrath of God and he has crushed the head of the snake, shutting the mouth of the accuser. Now, here's the question. You look at the world and you say, okay, it's still broken. Well, that's because we live in this tension of what theologians call the already, not yet. Jesus has already won. Daniel 7 has begun to be fulfilled and we are marching towards the day when the victory is secured. Now, does Satan still work, right? Does he still blind and bind the nations? Yeah, he does. 
But now his work is in an illegal guerrilla warfare operation because he knows that the war has been won. And so the people are no longer under the authority of the evil one, but under the authority of the Son of Man. What does this mean? So you heard all that and you're like, that was a lot of words. This is like you being on a playground and you're getting pushed over and beaten up by a bully. But now your bigger, stronger, older brother shows up and that bully is running away with his tail tucked between his legs. Listen, Corindeo, Jesus has won. Jesus has won. But far too often we forget that reality and we live as though Satan still reigns over us. Corindeo, he doesn't. He's just a liar. He's a liar. Every condemning word from his mouth is a lie and a farce because Jesus has secured the victory. So when you hear the whispers of fear, I can't say anything, and they'll hate me. It's going to be so awkward. I don't, I don't have the answers. I definitely don't know enough. Those are all lies, friends, that come with a hiss. Know that Jesus breathes courage up your backbone and pushes you forward under what? His authority. Jesus has authority. Think about what we see in the Gospels. He has authority over nature and nations. Jesus calmed the seas with a rebuke of his words, showing that he has mastery over nature. He has authority over nations. And it's one of the central themes of the Great Commission. Go into all the world, since all peoples are to be his disciples He has authority over diseases and demons. When Jesus speaks, the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are healed, and disease is gone. When he speaks, demons flee. He has authority over sin and death. As the Son of God, Jesus has authority to forgive sin against God. He also has authority to overcome man's ultimate enemy, death, which is the payment for sin that he has made. He has authority over our lives, right? Jesus' authority extends to every single individual, which for us as believers means we die to ourselves. And for us as believers, there should be a glad submission to the lordship of Jesus. This means in relation to what Jesus is saying here in the Great Commission, that we must be open to whatever he calls us to. Why? Because he has authority over every life. Jesus has authority over every life in this world. And this is why we seek to make disciples of all nations. While the Great Commission, listen, it certainly compels us to go, even to difficult places, we're not left on our own. Jesus' authority gives us confidence as we go. I mean, who are we to go to another people group or even our coworkers and tell them that they're following false idols and that if they don't turn to Jesus, they will die forever? The world views this as arrogant. And even as far as many people in the church are concerned, communicating this to people makes no sense. However, friends, if the gospel is true, which it is, if Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world, if he did indeed rise up from the grave in victory over sin and death, and if there is no one like him and he reigns as Lord over all, then telling a lost world about Jesus, it's the only thing that makes sense. What doesn't make sense is millions of Christians sitting back and saying nothing to the nations. Instead, we ought to go with confidence 
knowing that the one who sent us is sovereign. He is sovereign over all, and he is worthy of worship from all. And it's with this understanding that now that we know Jesus says, I have all authority, what does he tell us then to do, right? What do we see him asking us to do? That's what we see second. It's the task commanded. The task commanded. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So we start with this kingdom proclamation, right? That, that Jesus, he's got all the authority. Then we're given a command. We're called to go and make disciples. After telling us of his authority over heaven and earth, the next words out of Jesus' mouth are, go therefore. It's as if he's saying, hey, look, in light of my authority, go, go. It's not a comfortable call. Inviting most Christians to come be baptized, it's, it, it's not just saying, hey, come, do the thing, listen to the command, and then sit in one location and do nothing. But that's exactly what we're tempted to turn our mission into if we're not careful. This is what our Christianity will consist of. We, we may come to a worship service. We might participate in the life of the church. We may even give regularly, all the while neglecting to make disciples. The church is filled with people who have been Christians for 5, 10, 15, even 50 years who have never led someone outside of their family to be a reproducing disciple. We have missed our mission. We have. And if Matthew 28, 19 is not a comfortable call for most Christians, then what is it? It's a costly command directing every Christian to go, baptize, and make disciples of all nations. This has been the plan from the beginning. In Jesus' initial introduction to his disciples, he says what? He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. From the very beginning, Jesus made it clear that everyone who followed him would do what? They would fish for men. They would go and share the good news. According to Jesus, from beginning to end, to be a disciple is to make disciples, right? Scripture knows nothing of a disciple who is not making disciples. Yet, if you're to ask Christians today what it means to make disciples, you'd likely get jumbled thoughts, ambiguous answers, and probably even some blank stares. And consequently, we urgently need biblical guidance on this foundational command. There's one imperative verb. I'm glad Sarah Fisher isn't here this morning because I might mess this up. I'm kidding. There's one imperative verb in Matthew 28, 19. It's this, make disciples. And it's surrounded by three uh, participles, going, baptizing, and teaching. In this, what are we doing? In light of the massive need and the commission Christ has given us, Coram Deo, may we make disciples and multiply in our neighborhood among all peoples. Y'all, we live in a world of sin. We do. It's, nobody's surprised by that. We, we open our phone, we scroll, we see rebellion, suffering, and pain. There's a world where over 3 billion people live on less than $2 a day. And a billion of those people live in absolute desperate poverty. Hundreds of millions are starving and dying of preventable diseases. Yet the spiritual condition of the world is even worse. Billions of people across the world are engrossed in false religions, and approximately two billion of them have never even had a chance to hear the gospel. 
according to scripture, they are all on a road that leads to eternal condemnation. Yet as believers, we know that Jesus is Lord, that he's died on the cross for our sins, and that he's risen from the grave. The Spirit of God has opened our hearts to see and to believe. He has saved us to know God, to enjoy him, and very soon we will be with him forever in glory. But while we're here, God has given us his spirit for a purpose. We've been charged with reaching the world with the gospel. There was a missionary in China. He was leading a Bible study with a visiting team. There was a group of them sitting and talking about the command to be the salt of the earth. One shared the opinion, well, salt preserves, right? It, it, it preserves, it keeps it fresh. Another shared the opinion, yeah, salt, it, it also gives flavor. It seasons. And then at last, there was a brand new Christian, a young Chinese girl who had recently come to faith. She said, salt makes you thirsty. She spoke out of an experience that none of the others had. Have I made others thirst for the living water of Jesus Christ? Will we take the hope of Jesus to our neighbors? Will we? So far in this commission, we've seen a kingdom proclamation. All authority is Jesus's. A task commanded. Go make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded with all that I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Maybe you feel like you're up against the ropes and you're thinking, "Uh, Billy, I thought you said uh, I'd be inspired, not just convicted, because right now I just feel really bad. But we need both conviction and inspiration, right? And so let's see, finally, third, a promise of power. Look at the end of verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Remember, we started our time with the reality that the call to make disciples is an impossible task. You, on your own volition, trying to compel somebody with the right answers, having the best wisdom, the best critiques of culture and how Jesus meets those needs, but actually doing that absence of the presence of Christ, you're not gonna convince anyone. Because we said in this command, there's also a promise that makes the impossible possible. Again, you cannot turn the heart of stone to the heart of flesh, but the spirit of the living Christ can. Again, hear this from Jack Miller. He says this, his promise to be with us till the end of the age is no mere pat on the back to say that he will be with us at a distance with the energizing power supplied by ourselves. No, never He is saying that in all our work, he will be secretly working by his own inward presence in our lives, taking away our fears, giving us love for the lost, enabling us to forgive our enemies and friends, and giving us a fervent trust in the power of the gospel to bring men to faith and eternal life. If you're going to be obedient to Christ's call, the power to be obedient comes from him. If we're going to make disciples, we can only do so if we're dependent on Jesus. Be encouraged, Coram Deo, for this mission is not based on who we are or what we can do. This mission is assured because it's based on Christ's presence through his spirit. 
So why do we lack in fervency then if this is the case? In a word, we've forgotten. We've forgotten. We forget who has authority and who has promised to be with us. The answer to our lack of intentionality is a lack of trust. Friends, we need to recover faith. You see, believing in Jesus is the way the spirit of Christ takes over in a church. I remember last year really praying and thinking about the makeup of our congregation and thinking about the giftedness and and thinking, man, this church has so much potential with all the gifts and resources that we have. But friends, that's not a biblical mindset. It doesn't matter how gifted a church is or how blessed it is materially, for the people of God can do nothing apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. However, when the Spirit works among a people, that church can shake the nations for God's glory. Rather than being based on what we can do, this mission is based on who Jesus is and what he is able to do in and through our lives. You see, Christ is able to do beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. That's what Ephesians 3 says. So a practical story, right? What does this mean? Well, when you trust Jesus and you walk in faith and you say, Lord, teach me, show me, reveal how you want to work. Here's what can happen. There was Tom and Angela. They had lived in their neighborhood for about 12 years, and they had never really gotten to know any of their neighbors beyond just first names. They lived in a cul-de-sac of 11 houses and had limited communication and interaction with the people around them. And they admitted that it kind of felt strange because they really had a desire to know their neighbors, but nobody was making the first move. You know, that kind of awkward, like, should we? Like, this is kind of weird. Well, a number of years went by until finally Tom and Angela, in prayer, decided to do something. One of the biggest factors that had been preventing them from engaging their neighbors was timidity. They were just too nervous. And they began by taking one simple step. They switched yards. They switched yards. Their kids had always played in the backyard. And that setting was the social hub for their family. So Tom and Angela simply just switched to the front yard. They put up a swing in the front yard. They added some lawn chairs, and that was about it. Nothing happened at first. Then over the next few weeks, children and even dogs began to migrate into their front yard. Eventually, adults followed. Soon, both kids and adults were spending more time in their front yard than they could have ever imagined. And all they had done to attract this traffic was hang out where they could be seen. Then, Tom and Angela decided to go a step further by organizing a series of block parties and neighborhood parties. And surprisingly, the first one that they held went really well. All the neighborhoods all the neighbors really needed was someone to step forward and just kind of break the ice and other parties followed and the results were powerful. Barriers were broken down. People started to get to know each other soon. They were inviting each other into each other's homes and neighbors began to assist neighbors in various ways and ultimately opportunities kept arising to share the hope of Jesus. Rebecca Piper, in her classic work on evangelism, she says it so beautifully. I tried to reword it and just said, forget it. I'll just read it. I know I've read some quotes, but listen to this. It's so good. She says, Christians and non-Christians have something in common. We're both uptight about evangelism. Our fear as Christians seems to be, how many people did I offend this week? We think that we must be a little obnoxious in order to be good evangelists. And the tension builds inside. Should I be sensitive to people and forget about evangelism or should I blast them with the gospel and forget about their dignity as human beings? 
Many Christians choose to be aware of the person, but then feel defensive and guilty for not evangelizing. Our problem in evangelism is not that we don't have enough information. It's that we don't know how to be ourselves. We forget that we're called to be witnesses to what we have seen and know, not to what we don't know. The key on our part is authenticity and obedience, not a doctorate in theology. We haven't grasped that it really is okay for us to be who we are when we are with seekers, even if we don't have all the answers to their questions or if our knowledge of scripture is limited. I love that because again, the onus is not on you. The power doesn't reside in you, it's in Jesus. He has made you uniquely who you are. He has put you in your neighborhood, amongst your coworkers and your family for this purpose. How do I know that? He tells us in the book of Acts. He tells us that our days are counted, that he has set us in a place for such a time as this, that we would speak the hope of Jesus by the way that we live. Yes, with words as well as actions. So will we? Friends, how we need to put aside small dreams and worldly ambitions. We need to give Christ a blank check with our lives and then see where he leads. Together, let's experience the power of his presence with us. We want to be part of something that is beyond us, something that requires supernatural strength, not something we can just accomplish with programs and practices that we can manage on our own. We should be desperate for the power of Jesus. We know that obedience to this call, this great commission, it's not easy. And we know it will be costly, but we also know that it will be worth it. Jesus will return and his reward will be infinitely greater than any cost we have paid because his reward is himself. So together, let's hope in the promise of his return for us. The kingdom of our Lord Jesus will one day be fully and finally established and we will see his face, Coram Deo, for the presence of God. And we are living and longing for that day. So friends, as we wait and as we go, Let's go to our neighbors with the hope of Jesus. A couple questions for us to apply this this morning. The first, how does the authority of Jesus give me confidence in sharing my faith? How does the authority of Jesus give me confidence in sharing my faith? Second, have I taken the command to make disciples seriously? How might I need to repent Where do I need help to grow? Have I taken the command to make disciples seriously? How might I need to repent? Where do I need help to grow? And then finally, what difference does Jesus' statement, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, make in my life? What difference does Jesus' statement, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, make in my life? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the hope of Jesus, that you love us, that you see us, that you know us, that you pursue us. Lord, make much of you in our lives. Jesus, make much of you in Coram Deo. Would we be a people, Lord, who take the gospel to others, not so that we can win an argument, not so that we can be superior, Lord, but so that we can just say, come meet the one who's made everything new in my life. Come and see the one who's changed everything. 
that we can bring others to the hope of Jesus. Lord, I pray against the fear that comes from the lies of the evil one. Lord, this thought that we have to say things a perfect way or be such a certain way, but instead, Lord, we be just good neighbors, good friends, people who show compassion and care for others. Lord, would we speak the truth of Jesus? Lord, would you work in power beyond what we can ask or imagine? Would you use Coram Deo in this neighborhood, in this city, in this county, for your glory? Would you make much of your name, Jesus, in our lives? We pray all this with confidence in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Coram Deo podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or our website, quorumdeonc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram for a bigger picture inside the life of the church. Grace and peace be with you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.